It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Charles Aznavour episode of The Muppet Show, featuring our own very special guest star, Gregory Muppin! Welcome back to Muppeturgy, everyone. We're so glad you're here. I am David Levy, and here with me tonight are... Michal Richardson. Adam Grossworth. Christy Bauer. We also have with us Gregory Maupin, who is an actor and dramaturg specializing in Shakespeare, or at least that's what he gets hired for most frequently. He's an audiobook narrator for the American Printing House for the Blind, and also half of Renigazoo, a music duo specializing in songs of questionable taste from the first third of the 20th century. His wife, Abigail, is the other half. Greg, tell us about your history with the Muppets. Uh, my history with the Muppets, I am uh, in front of me right now is a copy that I got in Christmas of 1978 when I was five years old of the Muppet Show book. Uh, which is in all sort of a weird state of disrepair. Uh, but my relationship with the Muppets uh, goes all the way back to to me existing, mostly. I remember getting this book, uh, thinking back to season one, which I had not seen again until the DVDs came out, and suddenly remembering all kinds of pieces, which I could not have possibly seen in reruns uh, in that time. And it's because I read this book cover to cover repeatedly, I was a first generation Muppet show kid. I was of the, I am of the, the Henson Fred Rogers generation that, uh, that uh, wouldn't have known what to do without these little weirdos. Excellent. You'll fit right in. <laughs> <laughs> I just recently liberated my copy of that book from my mother's apartment, mm. but uh, the similar thing of like, Oh, like why do I remember the things I remember? And that book has a lot to do with it. And yeah. I'm sure at some point we'll, we'll, dig into that book a little more. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm even more curious to investigate the copy that's in my mom's house. <laughs> yeah. no idea Let us know. Report back. We'll, we'll post some pictures on the, on the <laughs> website, if not we'll compare and contrast. at some point. And in opening it for this event, uh, I have found my uh, autographed, quote unquote, uh, copy of the Muppets group headshot that came with the <gasps> Muppet Show fan club newsletter. Ooh. From that same era. I'm so jealous. <laughs> of which I, I think I may still have an, an issue or two along with some of the Muppet magazines down in the moldering basement. Adam, what's uh, what's new this week? All right. We do have uh, a couple of corrections and additions. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. So uh, last week we got in a bit of a tangent about television ratings uh, because of a comment that uh, Paul Williams made on the show. Uh, and we were fully unprepared and unresearched for that. Um, and then completely coincidentally, uh, in my Twitter feed, like a day later was this tweet by Rick Porter. Thursday's Grey's Anatomy averaged just under 5 million first night viewers at 61 minutes, including ads. That's about 304 million minutes of viewing time, or just for that one episode, 40% of the audience for the full library on Netflix the week of February 22nd. Uh, so that's some actual data from 2021 on TV ratings, ratings as compared to 1976. Over on the music side, we actually received a really lovely message from a listener named Abby Chandler, who wrote, I am writing to answer the question about the Coddleston Pie song that Ralph sings. <laughs> in, the, in the 1920s or 1930s, an English composer named H. Fraser Simon composed music for Pooh's various songs and some of the poems in When We Were Very Young and Now We Are Six. They were first recorded by George Baker, and then Jack Guilford did a recording of them in the early 1960s. My sisters and I had this record as children in the 1970s. Ralph sings Cobbleston Pie to the tune composed by Simon, so I'm guessing that Jim Henson was familiar with one or both of these recordings. Ralph is my favorite Muppet, and I love this record, and still hear Guilford singing the various hums in my head, so this was my favorite moment in that Muppet episode. We're still trying to connect the dots, re the William S. Haney, who we've previously found credited. If we figure it out, we'll let you know. If somebody out there listening knows something that we don't, we welcome any information you have. Once again, we love this. Uh, you can contact us through our website at muppeturgy.com or on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Uh, we are nerds. We are pedants. We are learning. So please correct us and share with us. Um, and this actually happens kind of a lot that we uh, learn things after we record. Um, we usually record a couple weeks before the episodes come out. And you know, often in the editing process, David will find things. So they wind up in the show notes on our website. Um, if they don't make it to air or things 
get cut out because we go super long. So um, check out Muppeturgy.com and you will find GIFs and YouTube links and all kinds of fun uh, Muppeturgical notes. Including that Jack Guilford recording of Coddleston Pie. Yes. Which made it into the show notes, even though we didn't mention it on the episode. Yes, but not the rest of that information. So uh, thank you again, Abby Chandler, for sharing that. This episode, this week's episode, is uh, the Charles Aznavour episode, season one, episode nine in Disney Plus terms. Uh, It was produced at the end of June 1976, uh, but did not air until January 17th, 1977 in New York. So it was the ninth episode made, but the 14th aired in New York. So we're jumping ahead a bit in terms of the air order, which is sort of interesting because this week there's actually some continuity in the backstage plot, which uh, hasn't really happened so far. Um, and uh, I haven't watched ahead, so I don't know if um, if that's true in the order that these aired in, but it is true in the order that we're watching in. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you Charles Aznavour is the perfect example of a Muppet Show guest star who was way more famous for the European viewership of the Muppet Show than for the American viewership. Not that he was unknown in America, but he was an absolute superstar in Europe. He was a beloved French-Armenian singer-songwriter. Americans will often call him the French Sinatra, but Aznavour also wrote his songs and recorded in like a gazillion different languages, so uh, he sort of had a lot more going on than Sinatra did. He was born in France in 1933. During World War II, he and his family helped hide Jews during the Holocaust, which uh, many years later he was eventually recognized for. He was also uh, later in his life very involved in activism for the Armenia diaspora, uh, which really started in 1988 when there was the Armenian earthquake. He was involved in raising funds for that and then really stayed involved uh, and has been called a couple times the world's most famous Armenian, although Cher might disagree. He began performing in the 40s. He opened for Ida Piaf at the Moulin Rouge, and they remained friends throughout their lives and collaborated multiple times over the decades. He also, in addition to being a singer-songwriter, was an actor. His probably most notable film role was the starring role in Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player in 1960, which you can watch on HBO Max and I think also the Criterion Channel. Uh, It's a great French New Wave gangster film. Highly recommend it. At the time that he guest starred on The Muppet Show, he was really at his peak. Uh, in the early 70s, he had a couple of really big hits, including The Old Fashioned Way, which uh, is in this episode, and the song What Makes a Man, which really was way ahead of its time in portraying sympathetically the perspective of a homosexual transvestite. Uh, this is a song that I first encountered actually at a drag show in Boston, and I wasn't familiar with its origin But I could tell from the recording that it was several decades old, and I just could not believe that this song existed. And then when I learned more about it, I could not believe that it had been a huge hit for a major, major recording star. But he really prided himself on writing story songs and being willing to to break taboos. And in fact, later in his life, he came to America, and there's a great documentary that you can watch on Amazon called uh, Charles Aznavour, Breaking America. and In the 80s, he tried to have a crossover career here to match what he had in Europe. And when the record executive said to him, well, you know, if you really want to make a big here, you need simpler lyrics. And he says, well, okay, I guess I can do that if someone else writes the lyrics. I'll just write the music. We'll find a collaborator. Then he thinks about it a little more. He's like, actually, you know what? Fuck that. That's, That's not who I am. That's not what I do. I'm not interested in that. I'm plenty famous. I don't need America. I'm going to stick to my art. That's so dreamy. <laughs> right? <laughs> Just like Gonzo. I'd say that the, his song that I know the best is the song She, which was a big hit for him in the UK in 1974. But I know because Elvis Costello had a hit with it in 1999 when it was on the Notting Hill soundtrack. He was also great pals with Liza Minnelli. They performed together. They released a joint live album. She recorded a ton of his songs in English. So when I, this week, was preparing for this episode by listening to his greatest hits, I kept coming across these songs that I knew but didn't realize were his because I knew them from Liza. He passed away in 2018 at the age of 94. Uh, He's still really just remembered very fondly. It's hard to find anyone who has a bad word to say about him. Just really like kind of the best possible 
international celebrity musician, actor, artist you could want. Greg, as our guest, uh, please tell us first, what did you think of this episode? I have a real uh, soft spot for the sort of uh, uh, jankiness of the season one episodes, maybe because they were where I first, you know, the first blush of love uh, for me at the age of probably five seeing them. But uh, there's something about that in general. So this this continues that, that sort of everyone sharing those little maroon tuxedos when it's necessary, you know. But also, uh, there's always a darkness with the Muppets, and maybe an existential French performer brings this out extra. But this had a weird sort of, maybe maybe it's just my week, but it had more underlying odd uh, darkness to it. You know, the, the one of the few veterinarians hospitals I can think of with a dead patient. The The panel question is about man's role in the universe. And also the first time I ever heard, long before I ever saw a Danny Kaye movie, uh, uh, the Inchworm song, which is, which has all kinds of, you know, which, which brings all kinds of things back up <laughs> uh, uh, for me as well as I'm sure for most human people. Uh, so, so that was my what I was left with watching was this was this feels like a, a dark episode in Muppet terms. Christy, how about you? I definitely agree with that. I, I also found it really charming, largely because Charles Aznavour is such a gentle presence, but like gentle in a sort of like inherently French ride knowing way. <laughs> so, like, so he's not he doesn't get overpowered by the the loudness and the shambolic quality of the Muppets. But also, he wears amazing outfits throughout. His pattern mixing game is really on point. <laughs> yes, seconded. Um, oh, yeah. But also, I wrote down three words as my main impression, which is, get it, Mildred. Mildred gets to be a star <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I think I've slowly, ever since we covered the Muppet Valentine's special, uh, become the president of the Mildred fan club. I love her so much <laughs> and I love to see her in bloom in uh, so many different scenarios, but also th- this episode felt like a rare time when the Muppet gender problem f- felt a lot less evident because in addition to the Mildred of it all there, there's a lot of piggy and a lot of Hilda and plus Janice and vets hospital. Like, I don't know the, I, I had a good time. Not to mention uh, Gonzo's brief, bout of female impersonation and if i'm not mistaken there are actually two female performer muppet performers in this episode i yeah i I agree with everything you both said i especially found charles asnavour very charming and very game right he's one of the guest stars so far who seems like most willing to interact with the muppets and like meet them on their level um but there were three things in this episode that I hated so much that we will get to <laughs> that like just really ruined it for me, which is a bummer because I really like the backstage plot and I too am fond of Mildred. Uh, but yeah, I, I, uh, I'm conflicted. Um, and I want to sort of, I, I, I want to just put Charles Aznavour in another episode or something. Um, Michal, save me. What did you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, ditto to uh, everything that's been said so far, all of the the love for the kind of ragtag energy of season one, and for get it Mildred, I also <laughs> wrote that down, because yeah, get it Mildred. There was something about the, the ragtag nature of this episode that felt kind of reminiscent of the Valentine show, where... It does feel like they are writing for the characters as though they're an ensemble and does feel like something is coming close to gelling, but there is some kind of energy that's still a little bit missing there. And maybe it's just because they they only have this kind of ensemble that doesn't feel like the complete Muppet Show ensemble, and it still kind of drags, uh, no pun intended. And the, the characters and the relationships between the characters are all coming along, and they're not fully there, and that's especially the case for Gonzo in this episode because he's starting to act like himself and he has this kind of Gonzo cluelessness, but not quite the trademark Gonzo cluelessness. So what I'm saying is it kind of feels like this episode has brought us back to Cleveland a little bit. David, where are you on Cleveland? <laughs> well, I actually saw that this had a lot of parallels with the Paul Williams episode and the reasons I like it are the same reasons I like that episode 
It starts with sort of a classic Muppet body horror vaudevillian sketch, and then it goes into a number where the guest star gets to do one of his big hits. It ends on sort of a quiet, almost down note. Um, what happens in between? Eh. Um, you know, it started strong and ended strong, so it left me with a good impression. <laughs> As befits an episode with uh, an international music superstar as a guest star, we have quite a bit of music. Uh, our opening number, as mentioned by uh, David, is a, a classic Muppet body horror uh, situation. <laughs> Tonight won't be just any night. Oh, he will soon be here. Be still, my aching heart. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and bright. And I pity any girl who isn't me. Uh, so I don't think we need to say much about the song. It's I Feel Pretty from West Side Story, music by Leonard Bernstein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. The Muppet Morsels erroneously says by Stephen Sondheim. How very dare them. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, originally from 1957. How would you guys describe what's happening here? A Well, I don't know how to use the word normal in the best of times, least of all around Muppets. But uh, there's a there's a fairly standard looking Muppet who begins to peel off all of her bodily features. Does she pull her? Uh, yes, she does pull her eyes off because she puts on new eyes with longer eyelashes uh, and gradually becomes a toothy uh, furry beast with giant claws and nasty big pointy teeth, which is just what her date is looking for. Yes. When she pulls off her eyes, it's the best part because it's right in time for when the other singers come on and she goes, what mirror, where could you can't see it? Cause she have eyes. I had forgotten not having seen this one in quite some time. When I rewatch it this week, I remembered the existence of the, the mirror uh, uh, singers, but I had forgotten that they're essentially cute little Prairie Dawn types who just have fangs. And as much as I love West Side Story, I've always found the what mirror, where, exchange deeply silly and i love that they have made it explicitly silly and <laughs> wildly sketch. silly yes <laughs> yeah i uh steven sondheim sort of famously not he doesn't regret these lyrics but he's somewhat embarrassed by them um mm. he, he wrote them pretty early in his career and he thought that they were more sophisticated than the character of maria would be in the moment sure. and I found this to be the most fitting performance of this I've ever seen. But <laughs> I, I think it's alarming how charming I feel. It sounds perfect coming out of a Muppet <laughs> literally deconstructing. <laughs> I, I think it's fascinating that the arrangement that they use manages to squeeze in two other songs from West Side Story before we get to I Feel Pretty, as though they need to remind the audience, like where this comes from. I, what do you think is going on with that? I was going to ask you about that, David, because I, I wondered if, if it was from some sort of famous cover of mm. I feel pretty. I don't think so. Well, it, it does. Cause it actually opens with her singing a bit of tonight, which sort of sets up the, the scene, right. That she is, she is actually waiting for someone. So that sort of makes sense, but I don't know why it starts with Maria. That doesn't make any sense at all. I suspect that it's just that the the arranger loved the score so much and wanted to be able to play with it. Yeah. However, we got the rights. We got the rights exactly. <laughs> Do the whole thing. It also kind of feels like a fake out too, because mm. it 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 seems like we're about to get something fairly straightforward, and then it completely upends our expectations. Right. It gives it a sense of gravitas, at least to hear the opening bars of Maria as though you're going to see something big and dramatic. And then you see a monster pulling all her features off. I, I like the setup there. It's a, it's a little bit of a, an extra twist. Hmm. Um, and speaking of uh, Prairie Dawn, this performer for at least the beginning of the number is Fran Brill. We talked about a little bit, was it last week or the week before? 
apparently, according to the wiki, this is actually the last time that we will see or hear her on The Muppet Show because she's going back to Sesame Street. But just some, I don't want to call it my favorite trivia because it's actually sort of terrible. Um, but in um, the Museum of the Moving Image in uh, Queens here in New York, um, actually separate from the big Jim Henson exhibit in their permanent collection, they have a pair of her boots, which have enormous lifts on them because she's much shorter than her male counterparts and had to wear them in order to perform basically her entire career, which sort of makes me angry, but you know, also go Fran Brill. Um, is she still working? She was still working until very recently. She was, I think she's retired now. Yeah. She retired a few years ago. Uh, I saw her live at a event at the museum of television and radio when being Elmo came out, they did a panel. Um, and she was one, she and Prairie Dawn were two of the panelists and she was an (laughs) absolute delight. This is actually uh, the second iteration of this bit for the Muppets. It previously appeared on a primetime special called Julie on Sesame Street, which featured Julie Andrews and Perry Como. And we'll have a clip in the show notes. So our, our next number is a star dancing turn, at least, for our beloved Mildred. Dance in the old-fashioned way. Won't you stay in my arms? And we'll discover eyes we never knew before if we just close our eyes and dance around the floor. So, this is the old fashioned way. Uh, which is the English version of a Charles Aznavour song called Les Plaisirs de Modé, uh, that had lyrics by Charles Aznavour and music by George Garverance. And the English translation was done by a pair of songwriters named Al Kasha and Joel Hirschhorn. Um, George Garverance was a regular collaborator of Charles Aznavour's. He was also French-Armenian and wrote over 150 film scores. But the translators, Al Kasha and Joel Hirschhorn, were a duo who won two Best Song Oscars in the 1970s, one for The Morning After from The Poseidon Adventure and one for We May Never Love Like This Again from The Towering Inferno. So they were the go-to guys for love wow. themes from disaster movies. What? Um, like the on the Muppet show. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, they also later wrote the songs for uh, Pete's dragon and were nominated for candle on the water as well. That's why I know that name. It's from the candle on the water sheet music from uh, choir in the uh, middle school. Yes. All right. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> Sorry. Scars. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. So Charles Osnifor is uh, singing this to and dancing with, uh, Mildred, who is wearing a dress with the longest sleeves of all time. <laughs> they go all the way down to the ground. Yeah, yes, they do go all the way down to the floor. Um, and uh, they're in a sort of like Lawrence Welke situation, mm. uh, surrounded by terrifying humanoid dancer Muppets. Maybe the scariest ones we've had so far. Yeah. I hate it so much. They're, they're terrifying. <laughs> they, they were always terrifying everywhere <sighs> they appear, but they're particularly sketchy here with no mouths and whatnot. I, I, I take back anything bad I said about the mutations. <laughs> what I think is interesting is why are they creepier than the guy that Rita Moreno dances with? Like they absolutely are, but they're similar. I will tell you, I, th- I think the men basically are the guy Rita Moreno dances with, but I think the way that they're costumed here they look to me like they're just people wearing masks. So I got this whole like eyes wide shut vibe, <laughs> eyes wide mup. I don't know. Like I just, they don't look like any sort of Muppet to me. They look like humans in Muppet masks. If you, and if you ever like type Muppet Halloween costume into Amazon, Ooh, don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of wrong ways to do a Muppet costume. Yeah. So I think that's part of why they're creepier. And then, like when there's so many of them and like at the end, y- yes, I made a gif on the show notes. Watch it. If you dare, if you haven't <laughs> seen the episode, like they come towards the camera in this particular way. So you really see their faces where like the Rita Moreno dancer was, was sort of always in motion. Um, and the men have these big seventies mustaches. And in this version, for the first time we see woman versions of them the mustache distracts you from the fact that they don't have mouths, <laughs> which I never noticed before. But now I do. 
Yeah. And I get what you're saying about the the menacing nature of the the unison movement, because when they mm. all lean in towards Charles and Mildred, there is there is a menace there. And then like Charles is dancing with Mildred. And yes, Mildred is amazing. And it is really clever puppetry. And her dress is amazing, like just as a dress, as a piece of 70s costumery. Like, I love it. But like, I don't know, there's weird implications to the fact that Charles is with Mildred. I don't know. I just found all of it so creepy. Last week, like we had, I there were all these jokes about Paul Williams' height, but I couldn't actually tell how tall he was because he was only surrounded by Muppets. And then suddenly, Charles Asnavour is dancing with Mildred, and it raised all kinds of questions for me <laughs> about both of their heights. And it really confused me. I looked it up. He's 5'3". So he's only an inch taller than Paul Williams. When I couldn't help but notice, too, that when he, like, I suppose we're supposed to think that he's a Frenchman. I mean, we we know he's a Frenchman. <laughs> but that he's, that therefore, the reason he's like sort of being taken off by he's going off with the two ladies on his arm before he goes back to Mildred you know that that's a that that's a thing that is an accepted bit of you know the frenchmanness that we discuss with Kermit later on when 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 Piggy is is uh, uh mystified and and such by him but th- i was really worried for him like i didn't know what sort of <laughs> What sort of uh, Logan's Run Zardoz situation he's yeah. gotten himself into? That like come come let us take your mouth, Charles. Uh, yes, it was it was frightening. I was very happy to see him go back to Mildred, not for the usual reasons. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I was just so happy for Mildred that I sort of blocked everyone else out because <laughs> you know, poor Mildred, she's so love starved, and here she is being wooed in this fancy place. She gets to wear a fancier than usual dress. She is in her element. It is this big emotional arc for her. (sighs) I just, it just makes me so happy. (laughs) But you know, now that you've all laid out your reasoning, it it is also terrifying, but (laughs) you know, which happiness is. Yeah. And your Mildred love is pure. and, And in the end, he does not go with the horrifying felt demons. So, I guess it's okay, but <laughs> I, I did not care for it. <laughs> Speaking of things uh, that you don't care for, Adam. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> nice segue. Uh, paste it on the left side. Where you find it on the right? Don't you tune down because it's a flavor. On the bed post overnight. On the bed post Ah, yes, it's our old friends, the Gogolala Jubilee Jug Band in the UK spot. Uh, with uh, Does Your Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavor on the Bedpost Overnight, which was originally written in 1924 as Does the Spearmint Lose Its Flavor on the Bedpost Overnight by Billy Rose, Ernest Brewer, and Marty Bloom. And the lyrics got changed to Chewing Gum when it was covered in 1959 by British skiffle superstar Lonnie Donegan, who made the change because Spearmint is a trademark word in the UK and the BBC would not play songs that had trademarks in them. Which I thought was kind of wacky. Uh, so, so his version uh, went to number three in the UK and actually to number five in the US in 1961. And according to Wikipedia, Lonnie Donegan is, was the king of skiffle, Britain's most successful and influential recording artist before the Beatles. And if you don't know what skiffle is, it's essentially an offshoot of jug band music with roots and folk music and blues and jazz that had a really big moment in the UK. It's, it's sort of funny that they did this in American jug band style for the UK spot because skiffle is, uh, even though it, it's, you know, the component parts are the same, it's a little less yeehaw and more kind of dinkadoo dinkadoo. So the difference is slight, but it exists. Um, <laughs> but but I, I, I do think that there, there's enough uh, similarity in, in the, the bones of it that, the, the British audience was probably still very happy. Yeah, here we do have a we have a clip of the skiffle. Oh me, oh my, oh you, whatever shall I do? Hallelujah, the question is peculiar. I'd give a lot of dough if only I could know. The answer to my question is it yes or is it no? Does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? If your mother says don't chew it, do you swallow it in spite? 
pan. You catch it on your tonsils and you heave it left and right. Let your chicken gum lose its flavor on the bed post overnight. See? Dink-a-doo, dink-a-doo. Yeah, dink-a-doo, no, totally. Dink-a-doo. You know that. It's, but it's a dink-a-doo that we have, like, without which we would maybe not have the Beatles, the Kinks, the Who, uh, well, Pete Townsend was more like traditional jazz, but, but like, uh, uh, in, their, in the forms that they eventually found, because this is what made them all pick up their cheap guitars. Yes, for sure. <laughs> so thanks, Lonnie Donegan. I want to be clear. I don't hate this because it's the jug band. <laughs> This was like a camp song when I was a child, and this will tell you a lot about the kind of child I was and the kind of adult I still am. I have always just found this song disgusting. (laughs) Just throw your fucking gum away and get a new piece in the morning. (laughs) Have you you considered that that itself might be the joke? I I suppose I also am possibly being classist. (laughs) Gum is expensive, but I just... I also think as a child, I didn't actually really understand what a bedpost was because I, you know, had never seen a bed with posts, but I don't know. I just think it's gross. I still think it's gross. I don't want to sing about it. I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. I do worry when I hear the lyric, can you catch it on your tonsils and heave it left and right? Yes. That's a recipe for all sorts of terrible things. <laughs> yes. Don't teach children that. Don't swallow your gum. Don't put it on the bedpost. Put I mean, I still swallow it. my gum sometimes, but still. And now for something completely different. Inchworm, inchworm, measuring the marigolds, you and your arithmetic, you probably go far. Inchworm, inchworm, measuring the marigolds. Seems to me, stop and see how beautiful they are. So yeah, this is Inchworm, which was written by Frank Lesser for the 1952 movie musical Hans Christian Andersen. It's uh, sung in the movie by Danny Kay. Frank Lesser. Oh my gosh, I get to talk about Frank Lesser. I'm such a Frank Lesser stan. <laughs> right there with you. Uh, so Frank Lesser, uh, most notably a composer lyricist of musicals. He wrote the uh, songs and guys and dolls, how to succeed in business without really trying uh, the most happy fella. Uh, um, also wrote a lot of standards, including some holiday standards. Uh, Maybe it's cold outside. Uh, what are you doing? New Year's Eve. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Yeah. I don't think that's a holiday song. No, never mind. <laughs> It is in my house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, what's interesting is the the setup of the song in The Muppet Show is very similar to the setup of the song in the original movie. In the original movie, Danny Kaye stops outside of a, a school uh, where the, the students are doing the math recitation on the inside and is singing to an, an inchworm <laughs> on a, a bush outside of the, the schoolroom door. Um, and and here, Charles Asnavour is sitting outside of a school where some Muppets in shadow are doing the math recitation, and he's singing to like a proto-slimy, <laughs> how my, my notes termed him. Another thing I love about this is it's one of a handful of straightforwardly done musical theater numbers with the guest just sitting in a beautiful field. And anytime I, I sort of see that as the setup, I know that I'm about to uh, probably cry. Yep. <laughs> Distinctly. Yeah. Um, but the, the song uh, sort of has become a standard. It's been recorded by a lot of people. Um, it's a jazz standard. Uh, it was a favorite of John Coltrane. Oh yeah. And it will return in Danny Kay's episode of the Muppet show. Spoiler alert. Yeah, there was weeping here, I know, in our house. Uh, uh, I mean, you, you expect that. You know, it's always an option during a Muppet show. Uh, but it it is one of those that uh, – and I know Charles Aznavour was known for his voice in France, but he has sort of an an odd voice. It is not – you know, the French Sinatra thing, I suspect, was based on him being wild popularity uh, as a singer. Not that he's the kind of he, – he has a – one of those distinctive voices, not one that you're like, oh, we should star this man in our, you know, our opera. But something about it, where, and of course, this is the version I had never seen Hans Christian Andersen at that point. This is the version in my head and heart. 
Uh, and there's, yes, there's something inexplicable about this little nothing happening song in its little minor key that, uh, yeah, that's, that's unspeakably cruel <laughs> <laughs> with the passage of time, unspeakably yeah. cruel. I just want to add that I recently rewatched Hans Christian Andersen and it holds up. It's great. It's mm. streaming for free on prime. If you've never seen it, uh, you know, give yourself a couple hours to enjoy just a charming musical fairy tale. A couple hours spent with Danny Kay is never yeah. a mistake. <laughs> Mild, sort of relatively mellow Danny Kay. Like he's not doing his Tumblr thing. He's not really coming at you as much as he is. Uh, he's, he's a lot more chill in Hans Christian Andersen, which is a good, a good gateway drug. Danny K movie for that. Ready, three, two, one, fire! Okay, it's shot out of a cannon time. And in a moment, we will get to uh, recounting some of the sketches that made this episode feel a bit Cleveland-esque to me. But first, we are going to address the backstage plot in which Gonzo notices, and I had been noticing too in the last few episodes, that he hasn't been on stage lately. Damn it. Are you busy? Uh, yes, Gonzo, but I can give you my ear for a moment. What would I do with your ear? Van Gogh impressions. Oh. Van Gogh, do you have to take everything so literally? That's just an expression. Hmm. Oh, what I wanted to know was, was uh, you know, I've, I've noticed that I haven't been on, uh, on stage for the last couple of shows. Good observation. Yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, Kermit, I, I have a lot of fans out there, see, who are waiting to see my latest theatrical creation. Uh, Gonzo, I have seen you eat a rubber tire to music, and I've seen you play a concert on your head with a mallet. Yeah. And Gonzo, my dear friend, it doesn't work. What? Kermit, you, I don't, you gotta understand, I don't play for the masses. I'm an artist, you understand that? An artist! Yeah, well then you should have gotten my Van Gogh joke. So we've t we've talked in recent weeks about, um, well, the cruelty of Kermit, which has been popping up a lot, but also Kermit not necessarily knowing how to produce a show because he's been bringing Gonzo in every week only to not perform. <laughs> so he's just kind of got him on retainer, I guess. I don't know. Um, but Gonzo being in this predicament leads him to seek out some personal management from Scooter, who apparently understands the true soul of an artist, or so Gonzo and Scooter both seem to believe. We see Gonzo demonstrate for Kermit one of Scooter's ideas, which is for him to perform a rock act. Uh, it's best understood in a visual, and we will have a gif in the show notes. But the rock act consists of hitting a rock with a mallet and yelling art, art, art. I'm fond of this. I am too. And just, just to be clear something up, last week when... Um, we were talking about David pounding his chicken and Christy made a comment about Gonzo. That's this true. is what I was thinking of the mallet situation, <laughs> not any other chicken related situations. And I uh -huh. just, just wanted to put that on the record. Good clarification. Sure. Thanks. <laughs> uh, so exploring Scooter's ideas about uh, what kind of art Gonzo should be performing brings us to either the most of its time or most ahead of its time moment of the week to be determined, we can discuss. And then uh, later in the next backstage segment, the dissolution of Gonzo and Scooter's working relationship. He wants the great Gonzo to do a costume act. Hubba hubba what? Hey, Chief, oh, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> you think the high heels are too much? Are you guys nuts? Well, Scooter says that, 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 that female impersonation is a noble art. Yeah. Of all the dumb acts Gonzo's ever come up with, this is the dumbest. Oh, gee, my uncle loves it. You go on right after the dancers. <laughs> oh, okay. What do I do when I get out there? Duck. <laughs> oh, by the way, what? I decided not to manage the great Gonzo. Oh, yeah? How come? Well, you see, I gave him the standard 50-page managerial contract. And? He ate it. <laughs> well, let's hope the contract's not binding. Yeah. I found this very charming. And, you know, for all the, like, yes, Kermit's kind of a dick, but he's mean to Gonzo, but there's something gentle about it. And I especially like at the end when, first of all, Gonzo doesn't actually have an act. He's just in drag. 
<laughs> and then he's like, wait, I don't actually know what to do when I get there. <laughs> and that, that duck line is, is, is not kind, but he also is like, Kermit knows that this is a bad idea. And, and it's actually a moment when I feel like he's sort of being both a good producer and a good friend, but also because of Scooter being a dick and pulling the, my uncle into the theater thing again, he's like, well, he's, he's going to go out there. It's your funeral. And I sort of like all of that. This whole thing raised two questions for me. One, does Kermit have ears? <laughs> <laughs> and two, one of the implications of Scooter's uncle really loving the drag act. Well, it was a very different time. I mean, it was like, you know, Milton Berle, female impersonation. Yeah, it's a noble art. What's the question? Noble art. <laughs> right. He's not wearing any makeup. He's not, right? There's no There's no contouring. He's really, he's, he's really, he's no Eltinch. He's just in a wig. He's Klinger. <laughs> okay. He's a lot like Klinger. Yeah. He really actually looks a lot like Klinger, which is a weird <laughs> thing to say about Jamie Farr. But <laughs> I also love the idea that Gonzo has fans who are clamoring. I mean, that could be delusional, but like, they could same. be actual fans, like could be little <laughs> spinning electric yeah. fans with little dot eyes. Yeah, they're oscillating for my latest creation. I'm trying to remember when I'm thinking that Kermit sounds cruel here, that we're in early days of character development in a way. And I mean that about Gonzo, which is to say it's easy to look at this Gonzo and know this sort of poignant balloon floating uh, 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 mm-hmm. weepy song singer from a couple of years onward and not think of just what you've seen of Gonzo thus far. He's taxing, uh, uh, I suspect, from a Kermit perspective. <laughs> <laughs> we find it hilarious because much like the Marx brothers, you're not around them when they're doing this. Uh, <laughs> other people are dealing with the repercussions and cleaning the things off the floor that they leave behind. Kermit, I suspect, is one of those people in the, in in what happens with Gonzo. So uh, w- while he does get kinder later, and one could almost argue a little too disnified in more recent years and, and less, you know, uh, uh, short-tempered. I get where he's coming from with this era of Gonzo, this era of weirdly Brooklyn-y. He sounds like Ross Bagdasarian's Peter Falk uh, uh, impression, strangely. He's kind of stupid, Gonzo is. Mm. They're trying to make it Gonzo's thing that he takes things too literally or doesn't get the joke. And that's mm. that's not quite the the Gonzo brand that he will eventually land on. Yeah, and at the same time, he's got all this like conceptual art stuff happening. It, it's a, it's confusing. I, I, I find it very endearing, but it's also not consistent. I mean, he's definitely on a journey. As much as I was maligning <laughs> the, you know, this is not the Gonzo that we will come to know and love. He's he's on his way there. It seems to me that the biggest difference is that he gains a lot more self confidence, and so it's like he grows into the moniker of the great Gonzo. And right mm. now, he aspires to be great, but once he believes he's great, he does acts that are just as shitty but because he believes in them wholeheartedly they they come across differently i do buy that his aesthetic is entirely an accident i mean he reminds me of artists i know in brooklyn in their early 20s (laughs) and i think that they too will grow into self-confidence and develop a little more of a specific thing and hit even bigger rocks with mallets and set more (laughs) on fire (laughs) as they do it's interesting even back this far though on stage great gonzo is a lot more displaying that confidence already than offstage Gonzo. Like he's presenting his rubber tire act and such with the sort of showman verve already. It's somehow these these little peeks at him offstage. On, the onstage great Gonzo begins to creep offstage into the character as he starts to make more sense, I guess. And I do wonder to what extent the bravado that he does develop is wholehearted and how much of that is also a cover and that's sort of the question at the heart of muppets from space which is the Mm. film i watched most recently of the muppet films Mm. so that's also probably coloring my vision of gonzo at the moment sure so as far as our canonical sketches go we've got a veterinarian's hospital where we have a bunch of jokes about how the patient is dead and i don't really think that those feel like jokes but here you go was operating and he went just like that. Yes, doesn't the time go fast when you're having fun? <laughs> Too bad, Dr. Bob. Your record was so good, you saved nine out of ten. My record is still good. This week he was number ten. <laughs> Yo, 
<laughs> I hate it. I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, Here's um, what I like. I like that Rolf is not playing Rolf and that he's playing Dr. Bob so that when he's a total dick, we don't have to let that color our vision of Rolf. Yeah. Our vision of Rolf remains untainted. We have uh, a sketch where our guest star is, and I believe this is a Muppet show first, uh, in the dressing room and doing a sketch that is occurring backstage. Uh, He's wearing this kind of Tim Burton nightmare kimono and he's hungry. There is roast chicken and salad and French bread. But Hilda, this is not a French bread. Oh, voyons, chérie, mais j'ai l'accent français. Of course, I could be wrong. This is a big episode for talking food. <laughs> I'm for it. Always a sucker from up at talking food. We get a lot of Hilda this episode too, and I just love her. We've sort of talked. We've questioned like who is stage managing this nonsense, but like Hilda is the wardrobe mistress and. In this episode, she takes care of the guest star and complains about Gonzo and Scooter messing up her costume stock. And that is the realest thing that has happened backstage in The Muppet Show so far. And she does this cute little squishy face a couple of times when she's annoyed. We we see that a couple of times in this episode, rather. And I, yeah, I am enjoying her more and more. She does these little takes to the camera. Yeah, I like her a lot. She's no Mildred, but... (laughs) Who is... Well, don't get too attached to I know. <laughs> We've got an at the dance sketch. As you may know by now, I am all for bad jokes that are beautifully delivered, which do often happen at the at the dance sketch, but these are just bad jokes. I don't know why, but I just love you. Well, you know how it is with us bananas. We have a peel. Get it? A peel. <laughs> get it? You see what she did there? Like, why did they feel yeah, the need to explain it? it? I feel like the banana didn't even have confidence in that joke. <laughs> I feel like it's making fun of a certain type of idiot person who tries to tell a bad joke more than it is trying to deliver the bad joke. Yeah, I was annoyed that it was a, a female Muppet who was like, didn't know how to tell a joke. But that's fair. That's my personal but, approach. But uh, animals dance partner gets to turn the tables on him, which I like not only because it was another excellent example of a Muppet woman perpetrating violence on a deserving man, but also because it's another instance in this episode where we see some continuity with previous episodes. Mm. That's true. That's true. The whole, everything with the banana and the rat is stupid, but I was really struck by like how real the banana looked, <laughs> which is not usually the thing that they're going for with the Muppet food. Like the the peel really looked like a real banana peel, and I was sort of distracted by it. I I don't know. It was cute. It was the joke cute. was bad. Cute banana, bad yeah. joke. <laughs> okay, we've got the talk spot, and I know earlier we were talking about what a great guy Charles Aznavour was, and we also talked about how Mildred had finally found happiness with him, and now we're going to ruin all that for everyone. I, I just, I'm just realizing as we're getting into this that my own hypocrisy in finding Charles Aznavour and Mildred creepy. I mean, not that I don't find Piggy hitting on the guests creepy, but like it's different. I don't know. I don't know why it bothers me with Mildred. The human because Muppet interaction. Piggy is a romantic lead and Mildred is a character lady. But see, that's not, yeah, that's, that shouldn't be why though. I don't know. I don't like it when Kermit does it with the female guests either, but there's something about like Piggy's characterization. I don't know. I think it was just because of the background dancers. I just thought I should call out my own hypocrisy. <laughs> I can't explain it. I'll play the clip now. More demonstration? Yes. Well, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to whisper in her ear uh, the telephone number of Paris Garbage Dump, you know? Mademoiselle Piggy, le numéro de téléphone de cet établissement est rue d'Anne 2767. Uh, I, I knew that would happen. Oh, Charles, listen, on behalf of all the Muppets, I want to say how sorry we are sorry. about all this. Sorry? I just met the girl of my dreams. Piggy. Piggy. Well, one man's poison is another man's bacon. 
barbarian. So Kermit deserved that. I mean, what bothers me about this sketch isn't the oinking or the, I mean, hitting on the guest star is never a great look. But what bothers me is that they're they're talking about Piggy as though she's not there and they're performing this demonstration on her that she doesn't know that she's signed up for and that takes her through a whole climactic sexual experience on stage. It's, there's no yeah, no, you're right. Did, did you you're just right. say that? I'm sorry, what? I <laughs> did, uh, to play the clip for you again? Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's happening. Happening. You're her heaving again? <laughs> So say without the visual, it is a lot. It's, yeah, I mean that's that's really what did it just now. Was like, oh yeah, no, that's what's happening. Yeah, that's I thought I heard it, but it's definitely happening. I'm sorry, but we know what Piggy's orgasm sounds like from the Muppets Tonight Billy Crystal episode. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> go pound your chicken. <laughs> Gonna drop a clip in. You don't think that I can tell the difference between a real sneeze and a fake sneeze? Nope. Get out of here. (laughs) You okay? All have what she's having. Only less pepper. Uh huh. Okay. So yeah. No, you're absolutely right, Michal. Um, I man's poison is another man's. I'll have what she's having. <laughs> <laughs> I guess because we just watched the Florence Henderson episode, where, um, I mean, it's not about Piggy hitting on a guest, but Piggy is like really aggressive and possessive toward a guest. There's like something about this that felt sort of like, you know, turnabout is fair play. Um, but yeah, no, you're, you're right. They are being cruel to her. Um, Except that as Amor says, he's really in love with her. But yeah, and it, her. It, yeah. it does, it does sort of end on a, on a okay note for her. Um, and I also sort of like that the French man is into the, the trope of like Americans just being so smitten with the language that he can say anything, which I don't know. I found it sort of charming. But, and he can appreciate also, Piggy in a way that Americans apparently can't, which I, I'm okay with that. There's just a lot of other stuff that I'm not okay with. Yeah, no, I get it. Anyway, we have a panel asking us what is man's <laughs> role in the universe. And we we never really get an answer, but the Muppets are trying. All right. <laughs> I suggest that we look carefully at what's before us and break it down into separate features. Jack! one cute thing about this clip is that i i don't know maybe i just never noticed it before but hilda has her little tomato pin cushion just stitched Mm -hmm. to her sleeve she carries it with her everywhere (laughs) oh always yes yeah you never know you might need a pin right that's that's what makes her good at her job I mean, if Gonzo's breaking everything down into pieces, she might need to stitch it back together. <laughs> Again, she might be the most realistic character on the entire show, yeah. and she's going to go away after season one. She got a better gig, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah Would you stay at that it's a dysfunctional workplace? No, no, it's true. <laughs> yeah, she got it. Uh, we also learned some new information about, about Mildred. And Mildred Hockstetter, M-A-P-H-D-O-B-E and R-S-V-P. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the first one of these without a human. Hmm. Oh yeah. Did not did not feel it was lacking. <laughs> I mean, did not feel it was very good either. But I don't think that was because it didn't have. Yeah, we weren't missing the human presence. That's not what was going on in here. So, speaking of things that aren't funny, <laughs> <laughs> we've got a fuzzy bit uh, during which Statler and Waldorf take their heckling to its log- logical conclusion. They run away with Fozzie's act, and then they turn on each other. Uh, I learned to handle hecklers by working in a nightclub so tough 
that hat check girl was a gorilla. <laughs> there were more people in the band than in the audience, and we had a one-man band. Uh, uh, I remember what... Hey, hey, how come you guys aren't heckling me? We love it. That's funny stuff. It's funny. Yeah, topical. Hip. Oh, oh, well, well, well. At this nightclub, a party of 75 came in. A, a lonely, lonely old lady, but she didn't drink much. <laughs> and I wouldn't say conditions at the club were bad, but when we asked where we could take a bath... The manager ran us through the car wash next door. <laughs> hey, fellas, hey, you guys, will you please... Please, please, we work alone. Aha, <laughs> uh aha, uh -huh. that was my line, my heckler line. See how very... <laughs> Me? Oh, oh! <laughs> I always love Stetler and Waldorf, but then I always remember that it comes at the expense of Fozzie's well-being. <laughs> it's an ecosystem. <laughs> it's true. All right. Well, we have uh, covered all the bits. Is there anything else that anyone would like to share about this episode before we close the book on it? There's just this, this very cute, weird thing in the opening um, with Fozzie and Kermit. Fozzie, mm. what are you doing? I'm checking the house. Will you get out of here? Sorry. <laughs> it's just so sweet. But also, Fozzie's checking the house from the center of the curtain where everyone can see him. It's not how you check the house. If if the host is on stage, <laughs> it's very weird, but also I mean, very sweet. He's checking the house. There's There, we, there are no two ways about it. There's only one the, slit in the curtain. Yeah, but you do the side or a box or something. But yes. We've you, also never seen the audience at any level other than exactly the same week after week. Yes. And <laughs> some of them are dead. <laughs> I have a couple of uh, favorite lines this week. We, we got to most of them, um, but I don't think we got to the running gag from Statler and Waldorf. I love the French tongue. I love pig's tongue. Pig's tongue. I don't get it. Yep, I know. You, you didn't, didn't order it. <laughs> <laughs> I I appreciate Stetler and Waldorf. Uh, we also we played a clip earlier that included Kermit going hubba hubba wa, and which the, <laughs> which the Muppets use with some frequency, and that Frank borrowed from old burlesque performers. And it, to me, it just feels so Muppety, even though it didn't originate with them. I love a good hubba wa. Yeah. We'll include the link to the Muppet wiki page on Hubawa in the show notes. I loved learning I, that it has a wiki page. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to shout out the Muppet wiki page on West Side Story. Uh, there is apparently a long and illustrious uh, history of West Side Story references across Muppetdom. And uh, they've done an excellent job documenting them. So hmm. I, I, I found it a... Uh, particularly worthwhile rabbit hole. All right, before we go, Greg, is there anything that you want to plug? Yes, I, I should say that uh, if you're bouncing around in the worlds of uh, Patreon or Instagram or wherever those things are, uh, you can find uh, my wife and myself as Rani Gazoo, R-A-N-N-Y-G-A-Z-O-O. We apologize for pulling Woodhousian slang out on you, but it's, it's we've got to all learn to spell uncomfortable things at some time. Uh, we've, we've got a passel of things up there that we, we think are fun, various types of spoken word and, uh, loud and obstreperous novelty songs from, uh, the twenties that, uh, that the Muppets are some, to some degree responsible for. We realized it's funny, uh, my wife and I watching these, when the DVDs came out, rewatching those first three seasons, how influential they had been because all of the unknown songs in the UK spots that we were seeing for the first time were now known to us because of the Muppet paths that we had gone down over the years. I knew Burlington Birdie from Bo. I knew that weird little uh, song that the mouse sings that's on a Pogo album, Don't Sugar Me. Uh, and uh, so if you like that sort of thing, you might like some of the weird things we've we've pulled out of the uh, other people do the standards. We We do the substandards. And uh, we 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 have a few of them available for you on our our various online portals. And where can people find you if they want to follow you on uh, the world? Oh heavens! The internet. Uh, I can't say that I recommend it, but I am at 
G.J. Maupin, that's M-A-U-P-I-N, like Armistead, but no relation. Very little like Armistead, really. We just have the last name. I don't know. I'm sure we're both very nice. Uh, but on Twitter, uh, that's that's where I waste most of my time. And we are Randy Gazoo at we are Randy Gazoo uh, uh, on Instagram. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been uh, a great conversation. I feel like we've all learned a lot about a lot of things. <laughs> Possibly about uh, man's role the in image the universe. Of, uh, Muppets wide shut is going to haunt me for a while. <laughs> you know, it just occurred to me that the dead patient doesn't have a mouth either. Does that count as a running gag? Well, you can't that's gag. He, well, he and the dancers don't have mouths. Yeah. Well, I really like this show tonight. At these prices, who's going to complain? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us next week for our discussion of the Harvey Corman episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. I don't heave it around. I just swallow don't it. Don't chew your gum. It's terrible for your teeth. Not sugarless. Sugarless is fine. Lest ye be judged. <laughs> wow. Strong feelings about gum here. Four out of five, Dennis David. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. <laughs>